Happy Sabbath! We are delighted that you have decided to start a new quarter with us. Today we talk about one of those things that are so Adventist. The Three Angels message is the focus of our quarterly study for these next few months. But we hope that as you go and you tread upon ground that has become familiar, that you find some nuances, some differences, something new, and above all, that God speak into your into your life in new and exciting ways. Uh, Joey and I are going to talk about Jesus wins, Satan loses. But before we do that, we're going to invite Jesus to be with us. So let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for your love, your desire to not only win, but win for us mm. we are just delighted that we get to be crowned victorious not on the basis of what we have done or what we have left undone but on the basis of you we pray lord that today even as we have not loved you above all things even as we confess that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves we simply pray that your grace transcend. For we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Joey, it's spring break. It's a fantastic time. The kids are out of school. They've been out of school this week. It's been amazing. How has your spring break been going? Uh, it's it's wonderful. It's always good to take time um, with our kids. Well, ever since they started school, it feels like life with them has sped up. Mm. And so moments like this, when we can actually take time away to be together as a family, mm. is, is just so precious. Yeah, yeah. We, I think we are, especially those of us on the team that have kids that are a school age, this is kind of the, the one week in the year that we guard above any other week. Because summer, let's face it, it gets lengthened and so by the end of the summer you're like please go back to school and then christmas there's so much stuff here at the church during the christmas season um that really i mean you're present but you're also being tugged in so many directions so at least for us uh, spring break has become kind of has become that season mm. whereas you say we take time we kind of disconnect we reconnect especially as our kids get older, I, I just am keenly aware that uh, up until last year, Micah thought I was cool, and now he doesn't. So um, the, the times that he uh, chooses to hang out with me, um, uncool as I am, mm. are, are, are times that I truly try to cherish. Yeah, I mean, as we only get so many years with our kids before they grow up and they start moving out into life. And, you know, that's something that as parents, we're working towards mm -hmm. the independence of our kids. But at the same time, it's bittersweet because that means we're never going to have these kinds of years with them ever again. No. So, <laughs> so no. making the most of it is, is so important. No. And then in, it's, it's terrifying to hear like, or to think that in a couple of years he's going to be like, Dad, no, I'm not coming home for, for, for spring break. We're going to wherever. Yeah. And then I'm going to have to say, no, you're not. You're, you're coming home. You're coming. You belong home. Um, because you want them self-differentiated. You yeah. just don't want them that self-differentiated. <laughs> yes. You want those connections to still remain. So I'm excited about this new quarterly. It's... Yeah. Um, fantastic and enthralling as it was to talk about stewardship for 12 weeks last quarter, um, we get to touch on something that is uniquely Adventist, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. this, this idea of the three angels, 
um, most of the scholarship, as you know, Joey, that is out there on um, particularly Revelation 14, the really in-depth scholarship is done by Adventists because this is one of the passages or this is one of the themes that is so deeply interwoven uh, into who we are as a, as a faith family. So I'm excited. I'm excited to, as we said, journey through some familiar ground and maybe discover some new things, which is, I think, the funnest of all uh, possibilities when you're going through this path that you've gone through many a time and then you see something that you haven't seen before. So I'm, I'm really excited as far as uh, what we're going to see over the next quarter. Yeah. What I love about Revelation, and this is true of all of Scripture, that there's always more mm. that we can discover mm -hmm. about God. But I think that's even more particularly true about Revelation, mm -hmm. because for many of us, um, it is almost like undiscovered country, mm -hmm. right? It's it's like the moon. We've been there, we planted a flag, we walked on it, and then we <laughs> haven't been back, right? And so Revelation has that that opportunity and there's just so much beauty and it communicates such a powerful message about who God is. And from a global sweep of history, it it portrays the character of God throughout history mm -hmm. and ultimately what he's, he's moving us towards. And that is so powerful. So it's really exciting. That it is. And so I think if we're going to look at, at chapter 14, uh, the lesson I think, aptly tries to kind of build a bigger framework. Mm -hmm. um, Revelation, uh, I've heard it said uh, by one of my professors who shall remain nameless, although she teaches um, at La Sierra University and is brilliant. Um, Revelation is kind of a two-way magnifying glass. So if, if you look at just a magnifying glass, you, you everything gets smaller mm -hmm. or bigger, I should say. And if you flip that around, everything gets smaller. And so there's kind of these, this duality to the perspectives yeah. that you get in Revelation, which I think is really helpful yeah. uh, as, we, as we start reading the book, because it moves you from like this cosmic throne room to, kind of, to the earth, back to this throne room, back to the earth. And so you're, you're constantly moving between scenes. Mm. Um, and I think the purpose of it is clear. Mm. Um, so I just want to put my interpretive cards on the table. I think the reason why Revelation is so enamored with the idea of moving us from the cosmic throne room to the messy world is because God cares about the messy world. Mm. It's because the that cosmic throne room that is inhabited by a lamb who was violently slain mm. cares deeply about what happens in this messy messy world yeah and it is god's desire to care about the messiness of the world that has john moving us from scene to scene wow yeah and that i i agree i that is absolutely clear that god cares about what happens on this earth and he is integrally involved mm. in it and what happens in heaven is is it seems is very connected to mm -hmm. what happens on earth and vice versa and so heaven is not just some distant place where god sits on the throne and sort of observes uninterested mm, yes. on what happens on earth he is very much deeply connected um to to all the happenings on earth and what happens, what he does in heaven does affect what mm. happens on earth. And he takes what happens on earth to affect what he does in mm. heaven as well. And so that connection is is clear. Yeah, you know? that's that's well said. So today's lesson, uh, the title I, I love, Jesus Wins, Satan Loses. Mm. Um, I think that's something that seems so apparent, yeah. particularly when you read through the 22 chapters of Revelation. For some reason, though, it gets lost amongst the symbols and the beasts and the trying to figure out who's who and what's what. Which, by the way, I, I don't think that's the best way of studying Revelation. I'm sure talk about this over the next couple of weeks. But there's the primary point, I think, that John is trying to get across is Jesus wins. Mm. And the point of Revelation is not that 
the outcome of this cosmic conflict is in doubt. Rather, the point of revelation is for you to understand the way in which Jesus wins. Yeah. Because what is, I think, fabulous about uh, whether you want to read it as an epistle or apocalyptic language or a prophecy or a eschatological missive, what I think is so powerful about Revelation is that the way in which Jesus wins hmm. is completely unexpected. Yeah. And the way in which Jesus wins tells you hmm. who God is. Yeah. Um, because ultimately, that's what John is trying to do. John is trying to say, look, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah. This is something that you, you can't see on your own because it's countercultural. Yeah. The way in which battles are won on earth, your frame of reference for how to win is so far apart from the way that the lamb wins that I need to show you, I need to share this story with you, this 22 chapter story, so that you understand how God wins. Because once you understand how God wins, you'll land, you'll understand who God is. Yeah, and that's that's so important. And I, I love how you're starting with that because the fact that Jesus wins and how Jesus wins is the main message mm -hmm. of Revelation. And yet, for some reason, we've gotten so caught up with all the beasts and the symbols mm -hmm. and all of those mm -hmm. things. Not to say those things are not important. And yet, the way that John frames it almost is those things are a distraction from the reality mm -hmm. that Jesus wins. Mm -hmm. Like, we see all these powerful beasts and creatures and things, and we think, oh, that is that is why Satan is going to mm -hmm. win. That is why it seems like inevitable that God is going to lose. And yet... What John is saying in the message of, of Revelation is that, no, despite all of these things that are distracting you, Jesus wins. Mm. And yet, sometimes we've approached Revelation almost backwards, where we've gotten so obsessed with those other symbols, we've kind of done the opposite of what John is trying to communicate, yeah. which is the fact, focus on the fact that the Lamb is victorious. Yeah. That's, that's so well said. And I think just the rhythm and the meter of the book speaks to that reality. So think, for example, about uh, chapter 14, um, who, where we are reintroduced to this group that we find in chapter 8, right? The 144,000. Um, and these 144,000, uh, they do one thing and one thing only. Mm. They follow the Lamb wherever the Lamb goes. Mm. That's kind of the defining mark of, the, of this group. And it seems like a really small number. And uh, there's a reason why, why John works it, it and, and tells us the number that I think goes beyond the symbology of the 12 and the 12 and the tribes and, and all of the rest, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But what I think is really powerful is in Revelation 9, you have this vast multitude that is amassing itself against the Lamb and it's millions and millions of people. And... In 14, you have this small band of people who have decided to follow the Lamb wherever it may go or wherever He may go. And I think the, the jarring difference between this multitude um, that is kind of making ready to do war against those who are, who are following the Lamb and this small band of ragtag people who are following a Lamb who was violently slain that dichotomy is is not to, there to tell you how scary the beasts it are. It's there to tell you how countercultural it is to to be victorious, uh, not by force or by might, but through through self-sacrificing love. Wow. Yeah, and yet a lot of times we focus on the scariness. I mean, mm. I remember growing up that. Fear was one of the primary messages that I got from Revelation. And I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that I'm not going to read into the motivations of the people that were sharing about the book of Revelation. Maybe that wasn't their point, but a lot of times that's what I took away mm -hmm. is a fear over what's going to happen in the future, how, how Satan is going to um, take take control of this world and his minions, his people, the people who follow mm -hmm. Satan, who are aligned with him, are going to make life terrible for the people of God mm -hmm. who remain on this earth. 
And that the fear from that was what was sort of emphasized in my mind. And yet the whole point of Revelation, if it talks about what how powerful the beast is, is only to show in contrast how surprising it is mm. that the lamb is victorious. Mm. But the lamb is victorious. That is the mm -hmm. message of the book of Revelation. Well, the lamb is victorious. And I think we're, I, I have a feeling that that is a phrase that we're going to be saying a lot over mm. these next couple of weeks. Um, I want to start with, uh, and the lesson talks a little bit about Revelation 13. We look a little bit of, uh, I want to look at, at a passage in Revelation 12 um, that kind of points out how the Lamb is victorious. Um, obviously, I want to just spend maybe some time, if we have time, in Revelation 5, which I think is one of the one of the key places to look at in the whole in the whole book. But I wanted to start um, our time together, Joey, by simply giving our favorite, and I mean we can uh, share some our favorite interpretive principles for Revelation. Um, so we're gonna go through the through uh, this message of the three angels. Um, but I, I thought it'd be it'd be useful to give some interpretive principles uh, to the people that are viewing. So what are some of your favorite interpretive principles for Revelation? One that's been really powerful for me, and this is something that I've learned from John Pauline, mm -hmm. is the fact that um, the writers of Scripture use the language of Scripture, mm -hmm. right? So the writer of Revelation, the book of Revelation, John, he relies on the metaphors and the language of the, the Old Testament mm -hmm of previous writings in order to inform. So to understand some of the language that he's going to be using here, the metaphors, we, we talk about how he he draws so so extensively from the book of Psalms, from, from Daniel, mm -hmm. from Isaiah. So all of that language, he almost, sometimes he explains, but other times he almost has an assumption that if you're familiar with this, you'll know what I mean by right. this, because I'm I'm drawing some various, very obvious um, connections to other passages. So it's almost like when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have mm. you forsaken me? He's quoting a psalm, a very, very recognizable psalm. So it's not just the phrase itself, but the whole lament that he is, mm -hmm. he is saying. So the message is not just a message of abandonment, but also a message of trust, Correct. right? So if you, him saying those words is not just saying that sentence, but alluding to the entire mm. psalm. And, and John seems to do, do the same thing in the book of Revelation. There are, there, throughout the book of Revelation, he draws these metaphors and images from other books so it's important to be familiar with those so that we can be make those connections to what John is trying to say so that's one that's been really helpful that is me. really useful and it's going to come in handy as we get into chapter 14 because that chapter is pregnant mm -hmm. with Isaiah yeah. uh, allusions and so you're going to see it and we're going to try as best we can when we see one of these to just point you to them because we don't have the same ease that the original audience had in terms of knowing the text mm. um, in a world that was pre-literate. Uh, pre people didn't really know how to read or write, the majority of them, and books were few and far between. And so the way you learned scripture was you had to memorize mm. that. And those connections, when something's memorized, are much easier to make than when something isn't. And so we're going to try as best we can to apply that principle. So that's that one's helpful. I like that. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, and we can share a few more. Uh, one of the ones that, that helps, that has helped me a lot uh, as I've gone through Revelation is uh, it's actually less poetic and more practical than the one you shared, Joey. It's simply... The book is not written in chronological order, so don't read it in chronological yeah, order. That's true. Um, a lot of us, uh, <laughs> like when we're used to reading any work of literature, we're like, okay, this is the beginning, the middle, the end. Not so for Revelation. Yeah. Uh, Revelation jumps all over the place, and it's got us jumping, going back, and going forward. Uh, most scholars would tell you that after chapter 5, we can kind of put a, a period on the book and it would end. Mm -hmm. um, but John is trying to convey some things, and so he's not, he's not writing chronologically. Don't try to read it chronologically. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And he he does these things where, like you talked about the the mm-hmm. the the telescoping, where he will zoom in to a scene and then zoom out to the whole picture, and then zoom into a different mm-hmm. scene from a different time mm-hmm. period, and then zoom out. So it's almost like um, a, a PowerPoint presentation where you kind of zoom in and zoom out of things, mm-hmm. but not necessarily in a chronological order. Right. It's more thematic. And the way that it's structured, the whole book is structured, there is this, there is a chiastic structure mm-hmm. to it. And we're going to be at the structural center of the book of Revelation, right? Which is, if not the thematic structure center, the, the structural um, st- center in Revelation 12 through 14. Mm-hmm. And so there is, but it's not, it's not chronological and it jumps over back and forth. And so, yeah, what you're saying is so important. And it's a brilliant work of art because there's chiasms within the chiasm, <laughs> um, which is which is really unique. And for, for those of you who don't know, uh, what Joey's referring to is a, a chiastic structure is a structure that kind, that builds up and then it has kind of mirror images on the other way. And then you, you reach the center and that's kind of the most important passage or place. Uh, so as you're mentioning, Revelation 12 to 14 structurally is the center and there's a chiasm there, but there's a chiasm within the chiasm, particularly in chapter 14, mm-hmm. where he's doing exactly what you're saying. You zoom in and then you zoom out and then you zoom in again, but you're in different in different places, yeah. uh, particularly as it pertains to the three angels message, right? You're moving uh, as at the outset of the of the text, you're you're in Zion with the hundred and forty-four thousand, and then mm. the the angels speak, and that's the chiasm, mm. and then you have judgment. But the primary, really center, or the most important part of that of that chapter is the three angels' message. Yeah. Uh, so the structure within the structure, as it were, is uh, is what our lesson deals with this quarter. So yes, don't read it chronologically. Be aware of the chiasm. What else, Joey? Is there anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, um, I mean, symbolism mm. is an important part. So don't take two things too literally, um, because what we know about apocalyptic literature is that it's not meant to be taken mm-hmm. literally, right? There was a, a definite poetic element mm. to it, and it was intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, some some talk about how apocalyptic literature was the literature of the oppressed, mm. right? So when you couldn't yes. literally call out the the powers that are oppressing you, you wrote it in a poetic mm-hmm. way so that nobody can say, oh, you're being treasonous, right? Mm-hmm. So there is there is an apocalyptic, this this apocalyptic literature is is intentionally mm. symbolic. And it's intentionally symbolic in a way that um sometimes we all we we like to in our almost in our Western mindset, we want A to equal A, mm-hmm. right? So that, you know, two plus two always equals four. So almost a mathematical construction where we say, well, this is this symbol means this here. So it always correlates to this here and always correlates. There is a sense of correlation, but the symbology in, in Revelation is a lot more poetic than mm-hmm. that. And so again, it draws from the language of the Old Testament. So context really matters. So sometimes there are things that in one context, because it's drawing from one part of, of the Old Testament, that it, it may mean something, one thing, and then in another sense, in another context, drawing from, from another part of, of Old Testament, it, ha- it may carry a little bit of a different connotation. Mm-hmm. So we can't just go and say, okay, this this number always means this. This symbol always means right. this. We have to take things in context as we're reading and allow for a little bit of the poetic license of the writer of the book of Revelation. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I tell people that for 65 books of the Bible, um, for the majority of 65 books of the Bible, not not every single book, but for the majority, the vast majority of Scripture, you take everything literally unless you have to take it poetically. Mm. That's kind of a great rule of thumb, except for the 22 chapters of Revelation. Mm. In the 22 chapters of Revelation, as you're mentioning, that rule gets turned upside down. Mm. And so you take everything poetically or uh, figuratively, unless you're forced to take it literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if there is no other poetic or figurative meaning that makes any sense, then you're forced to take it literally. 
The other thing with uh, with apocalyptic uh, literature that you, that you that you're talking about that is really important for us to to kind of at the outset uh, define is, and I know this is controversial, but I think it it leads to better ways to read the text. Um, is that authors of apocalyptic literature, as you're mentioning, Joey, don't have a singular event in mind. Mm. So you're, you're talking a little bit about how in our mindset, two plus two equals four. Yeah, except sometimes it's negative two plus negative two equals negative four, right? Mm. So the, there are different ways of reading uh, those formulas that lead us to different answers. Apocalyptic writers aren't writing for a specific event. Mm. And so when you're reading prophecy, you have application, fulfillment, reapplication, fulfillment, mm. reapplication, fulfillment. And so the it's not one reading of the text. You have several ways in which these this text can be applied. Mm. And uh, you have ultimately several several ways in which the text can be fulfilled uh, until you get to the end, which is the final fulfillment, which is which is the parousia, the, the the second coming of Christ. A really good example of this is, for example, the language of Babylon. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, right when John is talking about Babylon, Babylon doesn't exist anymore. There is no more. There is no Babylon. Babylon's been destroyed. Um, there's Rome. And so a lot of us look at, uh, at language of Babylon within, uh, within Revelation and say, well, he's talking about the Roman Empire. Well, yes, he is. But he's also talking about something deeper than, the, than just the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. So, so that even now, um, 2,000 years later, when we read Babylon, Babylon, we're aware that first century readers would have immediately made the link to Rome, but we are invi- but John is inviting us very pastorally to make different links, yeah. um, because what John is talking about is always deeper than the mere geopolitical situation mm-hmm. of our time. And I think one of the places where we get sideways with Revelation is we're always attempting to give the ultimate interpretation yeah. of the book based on our geopolitical realities, mm-hmm. and that leads to some really, really dangerous readings of the text. Oh, that is such a, oh, I'm so glad you talked about that. That is such an important point you're making because that is our tendency. And I get it because we are concrete people. Mm -hmm. We want to make these concrete connections. So there is a desire. How is, there is a question that we wonder, how is this applied to me if I can't connect it to events in my own life, Right. right? But the power of the symbolism and which is why I think God leads John and Daniel and other prophets to write in apocalyptic styles is that there is a timelessness to symbolism, right? To symbols that they don't necessarily have to be tied to a certain time and place, but they are a lot more flexible to adapt to different times and places Mm -hmm. so that yes, it does apply to our time and place. There is a Babylonian power that we live with right now, right? There is, there is a, there is a, there is a, a, a movement of confusion, of distortion, of there is, there is counterfeit religion. All of those things are present in our time and age, but they were also present before our time mm-hmm. and age, and they will be present after our time and age until Jesus ultimately comes and makes things new. So, so yes, there is a, there is some sense of applying this to our time, but doesn't have to be anchored to a specific time mm. so that it it has the freedom to be applied to different times and places as yeah, well. That's I think in in the last in the last 20 minutes we're I think going to do something that speaks to that because I think Revelation 13 is a prime place to do this. Um you know the 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 verse uh you have the dragon and then you have a beast that is rising out of the sea and then there's another beast uh, that comes out of the earth. Um, everything, by the way, that happens in Revelation 14 is God's response to the movement of the beast. So I, I find it really, yeah, we just finished and we've, we've been talking at staff, uh, a fantastic commentary on on Revelation written by our own Sigvid Tonstead. And one of the things 
that really strikes me about this commentary um, and shameless promo here, our camp meeting and our events around camp meeting are going to be living and breathing these realities because we f I f uh, found them transformative. I know you have, I know Pastor Randy has, we've all kind of been huddled around reading this and just found, found it so life-affirming. One of the things that Sigvi points out, and I think it, it bears, the text bears it out, is that in Revelation, God is reactionary. Mm -hmm. And God is reactionary because react, reactivity is the only way in which he will be judged as not arbitra non-arbitrary. Mm -hmm. So in the end, it seems, um, without giving the whole book away, but in the end, it seems that really what is at the heart of the book isn't who's going to win or what's my status, because the book isn't about us. Hmm. It's about or the or or the remnant or the Sabbath hmm. or the commandments or the spirit of prophecy. Not that those things aren't important, but that's not what the book is about. The book at the heart of John's message is what is the character of God? Mm. Who do we say God is? Mm. And does God behave in this in these ways? Mm. And so if God is seen as being punitive and as initiating, then the argument can be made that God is being too, far too severe or too harsh. So mm. Sigby points out that if you see, for example, Revelation 14, Revelation 14 is a direct response to what's going on in Revelation 13, mm. which is something the beast does, or the dragon. So setting that as a context, Joey, we're gonna, we're gonna look at, um, at these beasts for a moment. Um, and then we're gonna, we're gonna see how you can apply these to a bunch of different things, and they can all make sense, and they can all, I think, be helpful in defining uh, our spiritual life. And they can also be helpful in asking our question, the question, where are the beastly institutions and systems in my world today? Mm. So let's, let's jump into it. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horn, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and on his throne great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The world was filled with wonder and followed the beast and people worshiped the dragon because it had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against it? Joey, who is this beast? I'll <laughs> ask the same thing that the people in Revelation are asking. Who is like the beast? Well, going back to the principles that we talked about, um, especially that principle of that he, um, John is drawing on the language of the Old mm -hmm. Testament. This is very obviously a connection to Daniel, mm -hmm. right? The book of Daniel, where he talks about there's there's a reason why he picks these beasts, like this this um, seven headed beast with ten horns. I mean, if you've ever read Daniel before, you Daniel. know, oh yeah, that he's talking about that beast. But it's not just the final beast, right? Because this beast has resembles a leper and has had feet like those of a bear and has a mouth of a lion, which oh, is the other beast, that's right? That's the other beast. So it's like an al amalgamation of all those beasts. Mm -hmm. So it almost seems to be saying this, what he's talking about is instead of separating out different epics and time and empires and things like that, that we've done with the book of Daniel, it seems to be saying like all of these, it is a this this beast represents all of those powers and none of those powers, right? It's not any one of those powers that he's referring to, but it is all it is the spirit that runs through all of these beasts, like you've said before, these beastly powers. And so this beast can symbolize any of those oppressive entities that have fought against God's people and will continue to fight against God's people until he returns. And so the, the people who who cry out, who can defeat this beast are the people of God throughout ages mm -hmm. and through ages to come until Jesus returns, mm -hmm. who are wondering how can this overwhelming force 
ever be stopped? And that's a question I think that all the people of God have asked at some point. How can these these oppressive forces that seem so much larger and greater than God's people ever be overcome? And I think, first off, yes, um, you see what he's doing. He's he's linking us to Daniel, and he's making these connections because ultimately Daniel was the book on eschatology that they had. This is how they understood eschatology. Um, so yes. And the question then that is left lingering in the air for the audience is, is it possible for me to be aligned with a beastly power or a beastly entity? Mm. And that's so true. These these images have been interpreted in so many different uh, ways. For example, we all know uh, that when the Pope got moved, this is one of the, and it's not just Adventists that have done this, by the way. This mm -hmm. is the favorite Protestant interpretation of this particular chapter. When the Pope gets carried away by Napoleon um, and is uh, banished and imprisoned, we say, ah, that's the beast. Now, uh, and we talk about the Ten Heads and the Germanic Kingdoms and the Horn and the Little Horn and all this stuff, uh, which is, as, as you're saying, a link on Daniel. The question then is, has the church in Rome, has the papacy ever functioned as a beastly power? Yeah. And the answer is, yeah. Yeah, it has. Is all of Catholicism the beast? We're going to get in trouble for this answer. <laughs> No, because when the readers heard this the first time, they didn't have Catholicism in mind. Catholicism didn't exist. Mm. Seven, seven heads. Rome was built on seven hills. Mm. And there was a story that they would tell every little boy and girl in, in the Roman Empire that Nero, that horrible, horrible emperor that had murdered all these people, that horrible, horrible emperor that had burned his own city in order to build one that was more akin to his uh, aesthetic inclinations, that emperor was going to come back. This was the story that they, were, that they would tell. Nero, who has been uh, the image of brutality within a really brutal regime, which is the Roman Empire, he's coming back. And this just wasn't told to Christians. It was something that was held by a lot of Romans circa 90 AD. And so the question then becomes, did the Roman Empire act in beastly ways? Was Nero a representative of the beast? Did he act in beast uh, as yeah, and embody beastly powers, and you're shaking your head saying, yeah. And so John has in mind, oppressed, oppressed Christians in the first century, here's seven hill, they say, this is Rome. Mm -hmm. Rome, this is Rome. Oppressed Protestants here, uh, beast, and they say, this is the papacy. Mm -hmm. Oppressed Catholics reading and living under Protestant kingdoms in mm -hmm. Europe, hear and see this and the catholics also have a have a interpretation for this now. very same verse and it's oh this is martin luther and the reformation mm. and so it's not about it's and all of these people and systems can act in beastly ways oh man and so the 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 invitation then that this that the that the seer is making the invitation that john is making is don't be like that. Mm -hmm. Don't be oppressive. And oppression, obviously, as you as you mentioned, Joey, can take many faces and many forms uh, and sometimes uh, can speak in really powerful and convincing ways. And it can sound like salvation, right? The Romans talked about mm -hmm. peace all the time. Uh, we want to bring peace, but it was peace through bloodshed. It was peace through a sword. Um, that's, I think, what's radical about the question, who can make war against the beast? Mm. These oppressive powers seem so incredible and majestic, mm. and there's so, many, there's so much force behind them. Who can make war against them? Wow. Wow. 
So Miguel, you just said something that makes, I mean, I don't know about the rest of you. I don't know about the rest of you, but for me, it makes me very uncomfortable because it's, if we just align the beast as being Catholicism, I'm not Catholic, so there's no chance I'm ever going to be the beast, right? And so it's it's a lot safer for me as long as I don't become a Catholic or do what the or 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 um, uh, believe the beliefs of the Catholic Church, then I'm safe, mm-hmm. right? There's no way that I can be mm-hmm. a beast, right? And the only way I can go on that side is to completely abandon everything I believe in mm-hmm. and walk into the Catholic Church and say, I'm going to be a, a Catholic priest. That's the only way that mm-hmm. I can become a beast. But what you're saying is a lot harder because you're saying that the spirit of the beast and that anybody can actually act like the beast mm-hmm. and can become like the beast, regardless of what your official allegiance is. Even if we are Adventists, have Adventists sometimes acted in beastly ways mm. has have protestants sometimes acted in beastly ways and if you look at history you have to say yes we have we have there are times that pa- uh, protestants did terrible things to catholics did terrible things to other peoples right of other religions right so Yes, we definitely have acted in beastly ways because the most important thing that God is pushing back on is not a specific group or a specific um, official allegiance that we make in name, but a way of behaving and a way of going about and using the, the power and authority that we have in incredibly oppressive ways. And that's something that all of us have the potential to do and i i sigh because that is i mean i just said it but as you're reiterating it i got uncomfortable yeah um because you're right wow it's every single one of us has the capacity to act in beastly ways one of the most brutal chapters of the reformation happened in a in a little in a little town called munster and it was inhabited by Anabaptists. Now, Anabaptists are important because if if you put a gun to my head and you say, "Where? what is Adventist heritage with uh, different strands of the Reformation? Well, we're not Reformed. Uh, we're obviously not Lutheran. So it probably would be, we're not Calvinist, so it probably would end up being Anabaptists. And uh, Anabaptists got slaughtered, mm-hmm. not by Catholics. Um, but by other Protestants. And there was extreme persecution in, in Switzerland and in parts of Germany, not only of Catholics, but of other Protestants, mm-hmm. by Protestants who believed that this particular passage was referring to the Catholic Church. Um, the question, how open and inclusive and accepting would Adventists be if Adventists were the majority, um, is one that that forces us to to ask the question, can we act in beastly ways in our our own, maybe not in in the global scale, but in our own constituency meetings and general conference meetings? Are we capable of utilizing our power our numbers, our influence, are, are we are we capable of leveraging that into oppression? And I think the answer is yes, we are capable. And so when the question gets asked, who is like the beast who can make war against it? It seems pretty evident, right, Joey, that the way that you're going to combat oppressive power isn't through being more powerful. Mm-hmm. There has to be something else. Wow. Wow. You need to say that again. You need to say that again, because that's that's so powerful that the way to to overcome oppressive power powers is not to be more powerful. Mm -hmm. And yet that's exactly what the world teaches us. And though we push back against the world, a lot of times that's what we believe. Mm -hmm. The only way the only way to overcome the beast is to become a stronger beast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Come on now, Joey. Now you're preaching. Oh, my goodness. But if you look at even the history of the Adventist church, I mean, that's what we've often, that's often the way that we've behaved. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are times when we haven't. There's times when we behaved more like the lamb. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into into all of that deeper as we move through this this quarter. But 
there are times where we have acted. Adventist at its best has acted mm -hmm. like the Lamb. Absolutely. And that's why I'm a part of the Adventist Absolutely. church. So I'm not trying to throw the Adventist church under the bus, but it is the reality that all churches, all groups have at times acted in beastly ways. We've used power to try to overcome other powers. Mm. And in, 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 mm. in doing so, we've become like the beast that we're trying to overcome. Mm. And that's what's prophetic about a movement. So John is being prophetic, right? Because he is seeing oppression occur and he is saying, uh, no, there's got to be a better way. And the title ultimately of this lesson is Jesus wins. And the question becomes, well, how does Jesus win? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, when we go back to Revelation chapter five. All right. So you have this beautiful throne room scene that sets the tenor for the whole book. And you have this scroll yeah, and, and the scroll can't be opened. And that there's so much meaning behind this scroll. Right. Um, some scholars will tell you it's a libelous, which is what was uh, it was a scroll that emperors used to carry. And on that, it was the promise of all the dreams and aspirations of uh, of the subjects. And so um, the, the question of well, who can open the scroll, who can really fulfill this task? And then it's it's this beautiful, beautiful message uh, where John is invited to hear the lion but he sees the lamb. Mm. And I think that's how you defeat beastly powers. It's mm. not by becoming a better beast or a bigger beast. It's by hearing the lion who speaks unequivocally and who has the courage to speak prophetically. And that's what prophecy is. It's, it's the, you said it's the language of the oppressed. I, I think that's beautiful. Uh, to speak like a lion is to speak truth in it to speak truth to power but the way you do that isn't through violence mm. it isn't uh through weaponizing faith it isn't by um by being vindictive it's by looking at the lamb so i think the answer for the to this question that people are asking who is like the beast and who can make war against it it's um it's a lion that looks like a lamb mm. And not just any lamb, it's the lamb that is slain, Oof. right? Which is why, I mean, you gave us that hint at the beginning of foreshadowing of what is to come with the book of Revelation. But that's the, that is the surprise of the book of Revelation. For anybody who's reading it for the first time, it is that it is perceived powerlessness that overcomes the powerful, mm. which is completely mind-blowing that a sacrificial lamb is the only thing is the only one who is able to defeat the beastly powers mm. and yet we've seen that play out even in our Come our, on, our, our, our our time periods yeah. right i mean the nonviolent movements that were advocated by gandhi and martin luther king jr there martin luther king jr did not have military power he didn't have he didn't have the power he didn't have the authority the formal authority that the u.s government had or or any of the law enforcement had and yet there was a powerfulness in his sacrificial powerlessness mm. and that power powerlessness moved an entire nation really an entire world to change the way that it saw a group of people and groups of people right and yet that, that is the sacrificial love of Jesus that he was living out. Those are the principles of the sacrificial lamb that has the only power that's strong enough to overcome the beast and not become the beast. The beast. Because the, the beast sometimes, as we'll find la later, will act like right, the lamb. In lambly ways. Yeah, yes. will pretend to be the lamb. And yet at the core of it is this oppressive beastly power. Now, I, I think it is important to to make a note of before we end that at this point, we're not making specific predictions of how this will play out at the end of time, right? right? We're not talking about the specifics of eschatology. By saying that any power, any church has the potential to be beastly does not mean that we're, we're saying, okay, um, a specific thing will happen at the end of time. Correct. I think 
really anything that we say about the end of time, we have to have a lot of humility mm -hmm. because the truth is we don't know. We don't know. So we have to have humility. But we are saying that there is a potential for Adventists to be a part of the beast at the end of time. There is a potential. We're not saying that that's absolutely going to happen. He said that, folks. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't say that. He said that. But you're right. I will. I will throw my full support, and we'll we'll both get fired together. I will throw my full support be, behind that statement because I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And we're not saying for sure that's going to happen, but we're saying that there is a potential. If we're being honest with the reading of Re the Book of yeah. Revelation, there's a potential for that to happen. And the only way we can keep that from happening is to walk in the way of the lamb mm. rather than the beast. And I would say then that whatever it is that happens at the end of time, uh, whoever ultimately or whatever system or structure ultimately is wielding beastly powers is not going to be Adventist. Mm. It's not going to be Christian. It's not going to be because Adventism and Christianity and Catholicism and Lutheranism, any belief system that says they follow Christ uh, follows the Lamb. Mm -hmm. And so whatever it, it might call itself Adventist or Christian, but that's not what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. um, make no mistake about it. Those who follow the Lamb who was slain have understood the language of self-sacrificial love and therefore are constantly interested in hearing the voices of, as you said, those prophetic voices that uh, that utter the language of the oppressed. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned. We're going to have, I think, a lot of uh, sharing to do for in the next couple of weeks. We'll talk about who these, what these beasts mean and how we can tease out this message uh, of, a, of a lamb who sounds like a lion but has been slain. Uh, and shows us that power is found in meekness. Have a great Sabbath. Joey, would you pray us out? Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you for having the courage to be a lamb who was slain. It just blows our mind to think that the most powerful force, the most powerful being in the entire universe, found it within himself to come down to this earth and sacrifice and die as the way to overcome the powers of this world. Help us as your followers to walk in your way is our prayer in Jesus name. Amen. So go live out your life for the lamb and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.